Jesus said, have you not read that he who made them at the beginning made them male and female? You may find these words recorded in the book of Matthew in chapter 19 at verse 4. This was an answer to the question that was asked of Jesus in the book of Matthew in chapter 19 at verse 3. And that question is, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for just any reason? That is the question that we're going to answer tonight as we continue in our series of lessons, questions about God and about faith. I would like to pause and acknowledge my gratitude to God. I certainly appreciate my brother for leading us in singing. You have certainly done a fine job as we have lifted our voices together in praise to our God, for he is worthy. And I thank God because God has blessed us with everything we need for life and godliness. The Bible tells us it comes to the knowledge of him that has called us to glory and virtue, whereby given us great and exceeding precious promises, that by these we might become partakers of his divine nature, and we can escape the corruption that is in this world through lust. Second Peter in chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. And I'm glad for this wonderful fellowship that God has put us in. As a result of sending his son to be the savior of the world, and Jesus coming and living a perfect life and setting a perfect example for us, and then willing to go to Calvary's cross and to die and to shed his blood that we might have the forgiveness of sins through his blood, and then God raising him from the dead and giving us the promise and the hope of everlasting life. And I'm grateful, even as our brother prayed, for the Holy Spirit, the earnest of the inheritance that God has promised, and the revelation of truth, and the comfort, and the direction, and the strength, and encouragement, and the joy, and all that he provides. And I'm grateful for the church in every place. I didn't especially the church at this place. Your kind and warm invitations for me to come and to worship and to work with you in this special effort. I thank my brethren who've come from other places to support us in this special effort. And we are just elated that you've come to encourage us. I thank you, Roy, and I thank you, Caroline. I thank you for opening your hearts. I thank you for opening your homes and for sharing. And I thank you for our good time together. I thank all of my brethren for the kind and warm words of encouragement that you've shared, and it is my aim to continue to encourage you, if I may, with the word of God. I understand that the New Testament clearly and precisely sets forth God's divine standard of marriage, divorce, and remarriage. And truly, even as the Bible says, God is not the author of confusion, but of peace. God has a holy hatred for that of confusion, whether it be found in the world, in the church, in marriages, or even in personal lives. And so having said that, with the question at hand, I invite you to the text of the book of Matthew in chapter 19. As we continue our series of lessons, the Bible says in Matthew chapter 19 and verse 3, the Pharisees also came to him. Let me pause. There's a comma there. The Pharisees came also because the Bible says in verse 2 that the multitudes had followed Jesus. And they came because Jesus was healing people. But that is not the only reason why the multitude followed Jesus. The Bible tells me that these were common people. The Bible tells me that the common people heard Jesus gladly. The Bible tells me that these people were the kind of people, some of them at least were, were willing to listen to Jesus. And that reminds me of the people in this assembly tonight. That you've come to listen to what the Lord has to say. And you would be commended for that. But the Bible goes on to tell me that the Pharisees, they also came to Jesus. But the Bible says that they came testing him. Now that tells me something. That tells me that these people were not looking for the truth. That tells me that sometimes when people ask questions, 
that they're sometimes trying to justify themselves or they're looking for some kind of loopholes. It tells me that they don't have honest hearts. And the reason why I know that is because the Holy Spirit reveals their motive. We don't always know why people do what they do, but we know why they did what they did. We know why they asked this question, because they were testing Jesus. As a matter of fact, if you look in the book of Matthew in chapter 22 at verses 15 and 16, the Bible says that they had come to him again and they plotted how they might trap him. If you look at Luke's parallel of the same discourse, the Bible says in Luke 20 at verse 20 that they sent spies, listen to this, who pretended to be righteous. Can you imagine that? Somebody pretending to be righteous? We talked on Sunday night about a a faithful servant. How could you pretend to be righteous? That's hypocrisy. But they were not looking for the truth. And so here we find the question at hand. We know what they motive are. They said, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for just any reason? And verse 4 tells me, and he, Jesus, he answered and he said to them, have you not read that he who made them at the beginning made them male and female and said, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. So then they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let not man separate. Well, when they asked Jesus this question, let me tell you what. Jesus responded to this question, and Jesus says, have you not read? Now, let's dwell on what Jesus says first of all. What Jesus is telling you and I, that the answers to our questions can be read. What Jesus is telling us is that if we are sincerely looking for the truth, we can find the truth in God's word. Now, I must also say something else. Because one of the basic problems that we face in society today is a rejection of the scriptures as the only standard of authority. And we have seen such regarding the gospel plan of salvation. There are people out there teaching various plans of salvation. Or let me make it plainly. There are out there people who are saying things that a person needs to do in order to be saved. That is not consistent with what the Lord said. And we have seen that is reference to the organization of the New Testament church, the worship and the work of the church. And as we look at the influence that society has upon the, upon the church of our Lord, what we are finding, of course, is the obvious fact that there are many people who want society to dictate What is the standard of authority? And as society drifts further and further into sin, we thus find sometimes even brethren who desire accommodation and compromise. And so when we understand the mindset, if you will, behind compromise, we have no trouble at all seeing where many either compromise Bible teaching. Or else they teach outright false doctrine regarding that of marriage. Jesus says, have you not read? And so what that tells me is that Jesus is going to base his answer upon scripture. And that tells me that we should do the same. That when there are questions addressed to us, that we ought to be able to open God's word and we ought to be able to find the answer. Because the Bible tells me in the book of 2 Timothy in chapter 3 at verse 16, all scripture is given by inspiration of God. And it is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God can be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. 
The Bible tells me in the book of Colossians 3.17, whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God and the Father by him. The Bible tells me in the book of 2 John in chapter, well, chapter 1, verses 9 and 11. It says, whoever, whosoever transgresses in the body, not in the doctrine of Christ, he has not God. He that abideth in the doctrine of Christ, he has both the Father and the Son. And listen very carefully. If there be any that come unto you and bring not this doctrine, receive him not into your house, neither bid him God's speed. For he that biddeth him God's speed is partaker of his evil deed. And so we have God's warning. And even from the text that was read earlier by Brother Bob, from the book of Isaiah in chapter 55, verse 89. My thoughts are not your thoughts, and my ways are not your ways, saith the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts your thoughts. And so Jesus says, have you not read? That he who made them at the beginning made them male and female. And so when Jesus answers, Jesus helps us to understand by giving an implicitly negative answer based upon the creation story. When he says in the beginning, we understand the beginning to be the book of Genesis in chapter 2. With reference to the answer to this question, and he quotes Genesis chapter 2 at verse 24. And what Jesus says is that marriage is that which God instituted in the very beginning. And after Adam had named all of the animals, do you know that the first thing that was not good, it wasn't good that man should be alone. And so then God took that man and he caused Adam to go to sleep and he took a rib from his side and he formed a woman and Adam said, whoa, man. And this was the first woman. And Adam said, she is now bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman. And for this cause shall a man leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife, and they too shall become one flesh. And Jesus says, what God has joined together, let not man put asunder. And the Pharisees understood what Jesus said. And so the Pharisees responded by asking why Moses then commanded to give a writing of divorcement and to put away. And in reality, Moses had not commanded divorce, but had given divine revelation simply permitting such. And so the Pharisees were in a difficult bind to bring their charge against Jesus of destroying the old covenant due to the fact that Jesus had given reference from Genesis, the original intent of God. And so they could only ask how Moses could give a different judgment. But so when the Pharisees responded, then Jesus responded again. Remember, Jesus had already taught about this over in the book of Matthew in chapter 5. Remember from the Sermon on the Mount. And the context over there is about sexual purity, but addressing the subject of marriage itself. Remember what Jesus said. Whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. Jesus says, but I say to you, it may have been said that of all, but I say unto you. And whosoever shall put away his wife, saving for the cause of fornication, causes her to commit adultery. And whosoever shall marry her that is divorced, committed adultery. Matthew chapter 5, verses 31 and 32. And so Jesus responded to this question by affirming that due to the hardness of your hearts, Moses, through divine authority, allowed you to put away your wives. However, Jesus says, from the beginning, it was not so. And so the teaching that was set forth by Moses, as he was inspired of God, 
gave only a temporary and an incomplete means to deal with a very large problem. And a problem that many are dealing with today. And so according to Matthew in chapter 5, verses 31 and 32, and according to Matthew in chapter 19 at verse 9, there is only one acceptable reason as authorized by God for both divorce and remarriage of the innocent party, and only the innocent party, the one not guilty of fornication. And by fornication, we refer to all unauthorized sexual relations. The context of Matthew in chapter 5 and Matthew in chapter 19 indicate that this particular sin is under consideration. And it is committed within the confines of a lawful wedded state. And so when the question was asked, Jesus answered the question from Scripture. And what Jesus has provided for us is a true picture of the family. A true picture of the home. And that picture is simply this. That marriage is of God. It is his divine plan. And contrary to what others may say or what others may claim, that it is some sort of church ordinance, we find that from the very beginning God instituted that. And that marriage was and is and once for all a lifetime relationship that is sacred by its very nature. Because it begins with God. And that marriage is between one man and one woman for life. And that divorce for any reason other than fornication is sinful. And that divorce is permitted but not required. Because of fornication, authorizing the innocent part of the remarried condition upon the fact that their second marriage is with a divinely qualified partner. Let me qualify that. Now what that simply means is, number one, never having been married before. Number two, it means putting away a spouse for the cause of fornication. And then number three, Scriptural spouse has died. So Jesus has answered our question. I know that this is a hot topic. We've talked about motive. Why people do what they do. And sometimes people are not satisfied with the truth. And you know when looking for loopholes. Sometimes people try to ask the same question another way. I've heard people do that. Can a man divorce his wife for any cause? Jesus implicitly said no. Now sometimes people will come around and say, well, okay, is divorce okay? Well, we can answer that question from the scriptures as well. You see, because divorce has become so common in our society that the church of the Lord has gone unaffected. It's not going unaffected because even among our brethren, some are now teaching that while indeed sin is committed when those involved in unscriptural divorce remarry, and of course they are correct in this, however they teach error in limiting the sin exclusively to the remarriage. The context of Matthew in chapter 19 verses 1 through 9 denies such a view. Because in the marriage relationship, God has decreed that both individuals in the marriage cleave to one another. And God's desire is that the two become one flesh. And when one of the marriage partner puts the other away unscripturally, then one becomes two and God's arrangement has been discarded. And in accordance with Matthew in chapter 19, verses 4 and 5, our Lord says no. So the basic point is, is divorce okay? The answer is, divorce without scriptural cause is sinful. Not only that, the divorced fornicator does not have the right to remarry. Matthew chapter 19 at verse 9 considers only the action of the individual doing the putting away. 
They're guilty fornicator and a divorce due to fornication does not have the authority of God for remarriage because he does not have the scriptural cause which bestows such a right. The right of remarriage follows a divorce. It is dependent upon the putting away of a fornicator. And since the guilty fornicator cannot scripturally put away an innocent mate, it must follow that the guilty fornicator does not have the authority for remarriage. And so while it is granted that in the scriptural divorce, neither the former marriage partners are married, it is not granted that all non-married individuals have the right for the marriage relationship. Only those who are authorized by God may enter into such a relationship. And so therefore there is no authority for one having been put away due to the sin of fornication to enter into another marriage relationship. Well, let me clarify that just a little bit more because I know the church at Corinth, for instance, had a lot of problems. One of the problems they had was with marriage. And as you know, the Apostle Paul dealt with that exclusively in the book of 1 Corinthians in chapter 7. And not only is Matthew chapter 19 abused, 1 Corinthians chapter 7 is also abused. Because some, in ultimate desperation, they attempt to twist 1 Corinthians chapter 7 at verse 20. To teach that one may abide in any situation in life wherein one obeyed the gospel. Now let me say this. If this position had any merit to it at all, then a homosexual could remain in homosexuality. A drunk could remain a drunk. A thief could keep what he had stolen and remain a thief. A pagan could remain in paganism. And even those in denominations could remain in those systems of religious error. I mean, quite frankly, 1 Corinthians chapter 7 verse 20 teaches that one may abide in their pre-conversion situation just as long as it does not involve one in sin. We spoke at length about forgiveness last night. The idea of forgiveness is a legal term. It means to release one of debt. We understand that the wages of sin is debt. And God has paid our debt. We sang tonight in Christ alone. It brought our minds back to Calvary. It brought our minds back to Jesus suspended upon that cross and why he was there. The Bible tells us he was tempted in all points and yet without sin. Well, why was he upon the cross? He was upon the cross because of our sins. He paid the price for you and I. And Paul asked that rhetorical question in the book of Romans in chapter 6. Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. Jesus died so that we could cease from sin and not throw our lives away on sin, but that we could be sanctified, that we could be purified. And so, no, the divorced fornicator does not have the right of remarriage. And no, he cannot remain in that sinful state. Furthermore, all individuals today are amenable to the New Testament of Jesus Christ. There are those who have raised the question, well, where does Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John belong? Well, I can't answer that. It belongs right where God put it. The implication is it belongs in the old law. The implication is, looking for a loophole, if we throw it in the old law, then we're free to... Not use what the Lord taught in the book of Matthew chapter 19 and Matthew in chapter 5 verse 32 and Luke in chapter 16 and Mark in chapter 10. That we could discard God's instructions for marriage that God instituted in the very beginning. Well, let me ask you, 
If Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John belongs in the Old Testament, well, let me ask you, where does the gospel belong? Where does baptism belong? Where does the church of our Lord belong? Where does the resurrection of Jesus Christ belong? Our hope. Where does faith belong? What we need to understand is that the old law was coming to an end. It had served this purpose. In the book of Galatians in chapter 3, there were many Jews who were still wrestling with that. They didn't understand the spiritual nature of the kingdom. And Paul addresses that. Galatians 3.19, Paul, with a question, anticipates what some may ask. Okay, Paul, if the law is done away with, what purpose serveth the law? Paul said it was added because of transgressions till the seed should come. As we spoke last night from Genesis 3 and chapter 15, that seed is Jesus Christ himself. And so, yes, today, all men are amenable to the law of Jesus Christ. And there are those who seek to evade the force of Matthew 5.32 and Matthew 19.9 by denying that all individuals today are amenable to the New Testament teaching regarding marriage and divorce and remarriage. And while they agree that the Christian is amenable to such teaching, they deny that those same principles apply to the alien sinner. And according to this doctrine, it is affirmed that individuals may divorce and remarriage multiple times for any reason prior to becoming a Christian. Well, let's think about that for a moment. I mean, such a doctrine is, of course, fatally false because it contradicts divine truth that Jesus Christ has authority over all men. On Sunday morning, we raised the question, who is Jesus? Do you know there's a lot of people in this world don't even know who Jesus is? He is God incarnate. He is God who came to dwell among men. He's the creator. He is the son of God. The father sent the son to be the savior of the world. He is the Christ. The name Jesus will forever be linked to the Christ. And we said the Christ, John 1.42. That word means the Messiah. In the Hebrew, in the Old Testament, the Old Testament was written in Hebrew. The Messiah would be the anointed one. In the Greek, the Christ, it would be the anointed one. In the Old Testament, prophets, priests, and kings were anointed with oil oftentimes, to indicate that this was the one that was chosen by God. And Jesus is prophet, he's priest and king. He's God's final spokesman. Deuteronomy in chapter 18. Look at Acts chapter 3 verse 22. Look at Acts chapter 7 verse 37. And you will see that Peter on a day that Peter on Solomon's porch was, was quoting what Moses had written in the book of Deuteronomy in chapter 18. And Stephen, when he was dying, Stephen says, this is that prophet. But not only that, the Hebrew writer portrays him as this high priest. He's the one that went into the very presence of God because he shared his blood. But he's also our king. Remember the day of Pentecost, Peter, after concluding the fact that they had killed Jesus, he said, this same Jesus whom you've crucified, God has made both Lord and Christ. He's sovereign. That's who he is. He's the Lord. He's king. And that means he's got the right to rule over us. Jesus said in the book of Matthew in chapter 28, he said, all power, all authority has been given unto me in heaven and on earth. In the book of John in chapter 17, remember at verse 2, the Lord's prayer. Jesus acknowledged that the father had given him authority over all flesh. 
And so the entire content of the New Testament is applicable to all individuals. And that's why in the book of Acts in chapter 17 at verse 30, the Apostle Paul declared before those Athenians, in times of ignorance, God winked at, but now God commands all men everywhere to repent. And I know there are many people in this assembly who have already submitted their will to the Lord Jesus Christ. There may be those in this assembly who haven't done so yet. But that doesn't detract from the fact that Jesus is still Lord. There are many people who don't. There are many people who won't submit to him. But there's going to come a day when all of us will. And yes, all of us are amenable to the law of Christ. And the standard that's going to be used on the day of judgment by which individuals are going to be evaluated who have lived from Pentecost onward will be the New Testament of Jesus Christ. Jesus himself said in the book of John in chapter 12, verse 48, He that rejected me and received not my word has that which judged him. The words that I have spoken, the same shall judge him in the last day. And so if such is not the case, then how would alien sinners be condemned because they have not obeyed the gospel? The New Testament clearly teaches that alien sinners are guilty of specific violations of moral law as revealed in the gospels. Consider the Corinthians again. When Paul wrote them, of course, about marriage in the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 7, he talked to them about their former life in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. He asked the question. He didn't want them to be deceived. He wanted them to understand. He wanted them to understand where they come from and where they were. He said, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. And notice what he says, and such were some of you. And if you look in the book of Acts in chapter 18 and you see the conversion of the Corinthians, the Bible says in Acts 18 at verse 8, the Corinthians hearing and believed and they were baptized. And Paul said, and such were some of you, but you're washed. That's an illusion of baptism. You were sanctified. They were set apart by God, by the Holy Spirit. Because of the very words that the Holy Spirit left so that we can come into that covenant relationship with God. He said, but you were justified. That's a legal term. You were made right. Because God forgave you of your sins. Because your repentance was real. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. And so to be consistent with the no amenability view, false teachers, they would have to acknowledge that there would be no way of determining whether one was a sinner or not. And if it is the case that alien sinners are not amenable to the New Testament teaching on marriage, divorce, and remarriage, then how does one conclude that the alien sinner is amenable to Jesus Christ on anything? If this position is true, then the following, of course, would logically follow. No alien sinner could be saved from sin due to the fact that the condition of the gospel are components simply of the New Testament. And if it were the case that individuals are amenable to civil law, then it would be possible for an individual to live a perfect life based upon that standard and be sinless without the need for the blood of Christ. But all of us need the blood of Christ. Because all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There is none righteous, no, not one. And if alien sinners are not amenable to the New Testament, then it would follow that alien sinners don't commit sin. And we know that that's simply not true. And not only that, forgiveness does not sanctify the adulterous relationship. Because while some false teachers do not deny the amenability of humanity to the New Testament teaching of Jesus Christ, they sometimes falsely affirm 
that because baptism is for the remission of sins, and I might simply say it is, because I hear people say today that baptism is not essential for salvation. It is. When Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper, remember, he said, this is my blood, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. And remember on the day of Pentecost, when they asked Peter, what must we do? Peter said, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of your sins. And so I asked the question, is baptism essential of salvation? Absolutely. But just getting baptized without repentance will do no good. It'll just make you wet. While indeed God does remit personal sin. Again, I want to just rehearse the thoughts we talked about last night. Number one, God has a desire. To forgive us. You see, we cannot know forgiveness except that we're for God. But God has a desire. And not only that, God has the willingness. In spite of what we've done, God desires and he wills. He wants all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. While God does remit sin, let me tell you what, when one is scripturally baptized, one must recognize that these are the instructions that come from God on how they obtain such forgiveness. And so neither is it the case that baptism is for the remission of sins of which one refuses to repent, now, those who advocate this position will argue that there are some sins such as murder that simply cannot be undone. And while it is granted that such cannot be undone, such does not prove that one need not repent of such sin by determining never to commit such a sin again. I mean, I think about Saul of Tarsus. Saul dragged people out of the city, ran them out of town. He was at the feet of Stephen, giving his consent. And Saul, even himself, after he was converted, Saul described himself as the chief of sinners. You know what Saul does also say? That God used me as an example. In other words, Saul would say, you know what, if God could save me, Somebody who had done those terrible things. Let me tell you what. God can and he will save you. But you got to be willing to repent. And even Saul, Paul, the one who wrote the majority of the New Testament, he tells us what true repentance is. It's not just feeling sorry. Because just feeling sorry is not going to lead to change. In 2 Corinthians 7.10, Paul wrote to the Corinthians. He said, for godless sorrow worketh repentance and the salvation not to be repented of, but the sorrow of the world worketh death. He says there are two kinds of sorrow. There's a kind of sorrow that a young person may feel because they compromise their values and they're sorry. They're sorry maybe because they got themselves in trouble with mom and dad. Or maybe they got themselves in trouble with the law. And as that trouble subsides, there's no change in their lives. But then there's godly sorrow. When one realizes what God had done in making provisions for every human being by sending his son to Calvary's cross. And realizing that Jesus Christ paid the price for me. 
And let me tell you what, if that doesn't strike you, I don't know what will. Because here is the love of God poured out. That even while we were sinners, Christ died for us. And so those who advocate this position will argue that there are some sins that just can't be undone. But I'll say this, the sin of murder is not parallel to the sin of adultery or fornication. I mean, in the sin of murder, there is this past fact of history which cannot be changed. But in the sin of an adulterous relationship or the practice of fornication, there is not only the past fact of such a sin, but there is an abiding reality of continuing in such a sinful relationship. And repentance, a change of mind produced by godly sorrow, requires a determination to leave the continued practice of adultery or fornication. And I know we've spent our time on this question of divorce. That's what we're dealing with, questions about God and faith. But I certainly would be remiss if I did not mention marriage. I think if we spent more time talking about marriage, there'd be less time talking about divorce. I'd like to do that by simply sharing a letter with you as I close this lesson. And I want to illustrate what God's ideal for marriage is. This letter is from a young man by the name of Terry. It was received by his parents a month before he was diagnosed with lung and brain cancer. And the reason why I say that is because his imminent debt is not what prompted him to write this letter. That's not why he wrote this letter. He didn't write it because he knew he was dying. He did not know that. And so this is what he says. He says, dear mom and dad, I just want you to know that I love you and I appreciate all that you have contributed to my life. Thank you for raising me in an area safe from gangs and drugs and other bad influences. Thank you for instilling in me the values that help me everywhere I go and in everything I do. Thank you for setting tough standards and for not accepting second best. Thank you for assembling our family at mealtime so we could come to know what family means. Thank you for teaching me the Bible and for taking me to church. Not one day has gone by without prayer. I appreciate the good examples you have set. Your old-fashioned ways and principles of hard work and integrity have been a source of inspiration to me. I never forget the precious memories of you as good and honest and wonderful people. Thank you, Dad, for working so hard to provide a good life for us and for picking up your tired body to drive us around and taking us where we wanted to go. Thank you, Mom, for being a real mom and not a career person. Kids need somebody at home, and you gave us that. Thank you, too, for the nutritionally balanced meals, and for all of the home-baked goodies. Thank you, Dad and Mom, for making me earn my allowance. I know many folks my age and even older who feel that life owes them a living. I know that anything worthwhile is hard to come by, and I have learned over the years to respect the value of earning something the hard and honest way. Your example, and I know I've kidded you about it, of being frugal and stretching and saving, it did rub off on me. And most of all, I want to thank you for being friends and advisors and responsible parents. 
I look forward to our telephone visits and every time we have an opportunity to be together. I could go on and on, but I hope I've communicated my appreciation. I think about it often, but how were you to really know? I love you both. Sincerely, Terry. And not long after that, Terry died. But his parents had this letter. And you know what this letter confirms? That there was a transfer of values. Is exactly what God wants. He wants responsible men. He wants God's men. To accept the role, to accept the challenge, to love their wives like Christ loved the church. He wants women to understand and accept their role of submission and to work together with their mate as a helpmeet, to set examples. And if God blesses that union with children, to demonstrate those to those children what a God's man is and what a God's woman is. So that when they grow up, they know what kind of man to be or what kind of woman to be. And what kind of man to marry. And what kind of woman to marry. And what kind of values that they ought to have and what kind of values that they ought to teach their children. Is it any wonder that our world is so messed up? We need to be teaching our children that marriage is of God. There are so many people who are taking advantage of the marriage benefits without being married. And the Bible calls it sin. And I'm telling you that sexual intimacy is for those who are married. And Paul says, if you cannot abstain, then get married. Because that's where God placed those blessings. I'll tell you what, that's not the only blessing you get from marriage. You get companionship. You get help, you get trust, you get love, you get peace, you get harmony, you get happiness. And if you do it right, if you're the right kind of person, you marry the right kind of person. You're a child of God, you marry a child of God, you've got somebody to help you get to heaven. If God blesses that union, you teach your children, you transfer those values. But as they look at you, you are just a glimpse of the God who created you. And so I know we've answered the question. Can a man divorce his wife for just any cause? Jesus implicitly says no. I know it's a hot topic. I know everybody won't agree with this. I know everybody don't accept the Bible. But you've come into this assembly wanting to listen to the truth. And you've heard the truth. And the question is, what are we going to do with the truth? Are we going to live it? The sanctity of marriage is guarded by Scripture, folks. When individuals involve themselves... In unscriptural doctrine and unscriptural practices, you know what they do? They endanger their own souls and they endanger the souls of those who listen to them. And what I'm saying, folks, is that souls are at stake. Do you know that many people are going to lose their souls because of sexual immorality? And they're going to spend an eternity separate and away from God. And I just got to tell you, that's not what God wants. God wants you to be happy. 
And you can find happiness in a loving and a peaceful and a scriptural marriage relationship. And if we listen to God and we have questions, because problems are going to come up, that's just inevitable. Have you not read? Just get familiar with God's handbook. Oh, marriage handbooks, they'll help you. But there is no book like the book that God has made for us to teach us how to live in this life. You're here tonight. You're not a child of God. I'd like to extend God's simple invitation. The relationship with Jesus Christ is somewhat like a marriage because the Bible tells us that the church is the bride of Christ. It is that those who come to Jesus, in a sense, just like a man or woman would say, I do. The invitation is for you to say, I do, to Jesus Christ. I do believe in him. I believe that he is the son of God. I believe he is the one that God sent to be the savior of the world. I believe he lived the perfect life. I believe he offered himself at Calvary. I believe he shed his blood for me. And I believe that when I submit my will to him, and I'm buried with him in baptism, that he will save me from my sins. That he will wash my slate clean. That he'll give me a new life. And he'll give me a new beginning. And he'll take care of me. And he'll lead me that I can spend eternity with my Father. If you've never obeyed the gospel of Jesus Christ, we hope that the night be the night that you say, I do. If you're a child of God and you've gone back on your word, even so, God will still forgive you because he's merciful and he's kind. And John says that if we confess our sins, he is faithful. He's the faithful God. He is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins. And the blood of Jesus Christ will cleanse us. If you're here tonight, you respond to the gospel. And we bid you to come. Together, we stand and sing.